Hello, and welcome to Lockdown Literature, with me, James. Across the world, many of you are confined to your homes for the foreseeable future. It can be lonely to sit at home by oneself, so to try and ease your soul, I will read from a selection of works to help you through this torrid period. Today, I will read Part 2 of The Snow Goose by Paul Gallico. If you haven't already listened to Part 1, you can find it on my Facebook page or the Apple Podcast Directory. In mid-October, the miracle occurred. Ryada was in his enclosure feeding his birds. A grey northeast wind was blowing and the land was sighing beneath the incoming tide. Above the sea and the wind noises, he heard a clear high note. He turned his eyes upward to the evening sky in time to see first an infinite speck then a black-and-white pinion dream that circled the lighthouse once, and finally a reality that dropped to earth in the pen and came waddling forward, importantly, to be fed, as though she had never been away. It was the snow goose. There was no mistaking her. Tears of joy came to Ryada's eyes. Where had she been? Surely not home to Canada. No, she must have summered in Greenland, or Spitsbergen with the pink feet. She had remembered and had returned. When Ryada went into Chelmsbury for supplies, he left a message with the postmistress, one that must have caused her much bewilderment. He said, Tell Frith, who lives with the fisher folk at Wickledroth, that the lost princess has returned. Three days later, Frith, taller, still tussled and unkempt, came shyly to the lighthouse to visit La Princesse Perdue. Time passed, on the great marsh it was marked by the height of the tides, the slow march of the seasons, the passage of the birds, and, for Ryada, by the arrival and departure of the snow goose. The world outside boiled and seethed and rumbled with the eruption that was soon to break forth and come close to marking its destruction. But not yet did it touch upon Ryada, or, for that matter, Frith. They had fallen into a curious natural rhythm, even as the child grew older, when the snow goose was at the lighthouse, then she came too, to visit and learn many things from Ryada. They sailed together in his speedy boat that he handled so skilfully. They caught wildfowl for the ever-increasing colony and built new pens and enclosures for them. From him she learned the lore of every wild bird, from gull to garfalcon, that flew the marshes. She cooked for him sometimes, and even learned to mix his paints. But when the snow goose returned to its summer home, it was as though some kind of bar was up between them, and she did not come to the lighthouse. One year, the bird did not return, and Ryada was heartbroken. All things seemed to have ended for him. He painted furiously through the winter and the next summer, and never once saw the child. But in the fall, the familiar cry once more rang from the sky, and the huge white bird, now at its full growth, dropped from the skies as mysteriously as it had departed. Ryada sailed his boat into Chelmbury and left his message with the postmistress. Curiously, it was more than a month after he had left the message before Frith reappeared at the lighthouse, and Ryada, with a shock, realised that she was a child no longer. After the year in which the bird had remained away, its periods of absence grew shorter and shorter. It had grown so tame that it followed Ryada about, and even came into the studio while he was working. In the spring of 1940, the birds migrated early from the Great Marsh. 
the world was on fire. The whine and roar of the bombers and the thudding explosions frightened them. The first day of May, Frith and Ryada stood shoulder to shoulder on the seawall and watched the last of the unpinioned pink feet and barnacle geese rise from their sanctuary. She, tall, slender, free as air and hauntingly beautiful, he, dark, grotesque, his massive bearded head raised to the sky, his glowing dark eyes watching the geese from their flight tracery. Look, Philip, Frith said. Ryada followed her eyes. The snow goose had taken flight. Her giant wings spread, but she was flying low, and once came quite close to them, so that for a moment the spreading black-tipped white pinions seemed to caress them, and they felt the rush of the bird's swift passage. Once, twice, she circled the lighthouse, then dropped to earth again in the enclosure with the pinioned geese and commenced to feed. "'She bain't going,' said Frith, with marvel in her voice. The bird in its close passage seemed to have woven a kind of magic about her. "'The princess be going to stay.' "'Aye,' said Ryada, and his voice was shaken too. "'She'll stay. She will never go away again. "'The lost princess is lost no more. "'This is her home now, of her own free will.' "'The spell the bird had girt about her was broken, "'and Frith was suddenly conscious of the fact she was frightened, "'and the things that frightened her were in Ryada's eyes, "'the longing and the loneliness and the deep, welling, unspoken things "'that lay in and behind them as he turned them upon her.' His last words were repeating themselves in her head, as though he had said them again. This is her home now, of her own free will. The delicate tendrils of her instincts reached to him and carried to her the message of the things he could not speak because of what he felt himself to be, misshapen and grotesque. And where his voice might have soothed her, her fright grew greater at his silence and the power of the unspoken things between them. The woman in her bade her take flight from something that she was not yet capable of understanding. Frith said, I... I must go. Goodbye. I'd be glad that the princess will stay. You'll not be so alone now. She turned and walked swiftly away, and his sadly spoken, Goodbye, Frith, was only a half-heard ghost of a sound borne to her ears above the rustling of the marsh grass. She was far away before she dared turn for a backward glance. He was still standing on the sea wall, a dark speck against the sky. Her fear had stilled now. It had been replaced by something else. A queer sense of loss that made her stand quite still for a moment. So sharp was it. Then, more slowly, she continued on, away from the skyward pointing figure of the lighthouse and the man beneath it. It was a little more than three weeks before Frith returned to the lighthouse. May was at its end, and the day, too, in the long golden twilight that was giving way to the silver of the moon already hanging in the eastern sky. She told herself, as her steps took her thither, that she must know whether the snow goose had really stayed as Ryada said it would. Perhaps it had flown away, after all. But her firm tread on the sea wall was full of eagerness, and sometimes, unconsciously, she found herself hurrying. Frith saw the yellow light of Ryada's lantern down by his little wharf, and she found him there. His sailboat was rocking gently on a flooding tide, and he was loading supplies into her. Water and food and bottles of brandy. Gear and a spare sail. 
When he turned to the sound of her coming, she saw that he was pale, but that his dark eyes, usually so kind and placid, were glowing with excitement, and he was breathing heavily from his exertions. Sudden alarm seized Frith. The snow goose was forgotten. Philip, ye be going away? Ryder paused in his work to greet her, and there was something in his face, a glow and a look that she had never seen there before. Frith, I'm glad you came. Yes, I must go away. A little trip. I will come back. His usually kindly voice was hoarse with what was suppressed inside him. Frith asked, Where must ye go? Words came tumbling from Ryder now. He must go to Dunkirk. A hundred miles across the channel, a British army was trapped there on the sands, awaiting destruction at the hands of the advancing Germans. The port was in flames, the position hopeless. He had heard it in the village when he had gone for supplies. Men were putting out from Chelmbury in answer to the government's call. Every tug and fishing boat or power launch that could propel itself was heading across the channel to haul the men off the beaches to the transports and destroyers that could not reach the shallows to rescue as many as possible from the Germans' fire. Frith listened and felt her heart dying within her. He was saying that he would sail the channel in his little boat. It could take six men at a time, in a pinch, seven. He could make many trips from the beaches to the transports. The girl was young, primitive, inarticulate. She did not understand war or what had happened in France, or the meaning of the trapped army. But the blood within her told her that here was danger. Philip, must ye go? You'll not come back. Why must it be ye? The fever seemed to have gone from Ryder's soul. With the first rush of words, and he explained it to her in terms that she could understand. He said, Men are huddled on the beaches like hunted birds, Frith, like the wounded and hunted birds we used to find and bring to sanctuary. Over them fly the steel peregrines, hawks and griffalcons, and they have no shelter from these iron birds of prey. They are lost and storm-driven and harried, like the Princess Perdue that you found and brought to me out of the marshes many years ago, and we healed her. They need my help, my dear, as our wild creatures have needed help, and that is why I must go. It is something that I can do. Yes, I can. For once, for once I can be a man and play my part. Frith stared at Ryder. He had changed so. For the first time she saw that he was no longer ugly or misshapen or grotesque, but very beautiful. Things were turmoiling in her own soul, crying to be said, and she did not know how to say them. I'll come with thee, Philip. Ryder shook his head. Your place in the boat would cause a soldier to be left behind, and another, and another. I must go alone. He donned rubber coat and boots, and took to his boat. He waved and called back, Goodbye. Will you look after the birds until I return, Frith? Frith's hand came up, but only half, to wave too. Godspeed, you, she said, but gave it the Saxon turn. I'll take care of t birds. Godspeed, Philip. It was night now, bright with moon fragment and stars and northern glow. Frith stood on the sea wall and watched the sail gliding down the swollen estuary. 
Suddenly, from the darkness behind her, there came a rush of wings and something swept past her into the air. In the night light, she saw the flash of white wings, black-tipped, and the thrust-forward head of the snow goose. It rose and cruised over the lighthouse once, and then headed down the winding creek where Raya de Sale was slanting in the gaining breeze, and flew above him in slow, wide circles. White sail and white bird were visible for a long time. Watch o'er him, watch o'er him, Frith whispered. When they were both out of sight at last, she turned and walked slowly, with bent head, back to the empty lighthouse. Now the story becomes fragmentary. And one of these fragments is in the words of the men on leave, who told it in the public room of the Crown and Arrow, an East Chapel pub. A goose, a blooming goose, so help me, said Private Potten of His Majesty's London Rifles. Gone, said a bandy-legged artilleryman. A goose it was, Jock here seed it the same as me. It come flying down out of the muck and stink and smoke of Dunkirk that were overhead. It was white with black on its wings and it circles us like a blooming dive bomber. Jock here, he says, we're done for. It's the angel of death, a come for us. Gone, I says. It's a ruddy goose, come over from home, with message from Churchill, and now we are enjoying the blooming bathing. It's an omen, that's what it is, a bloody omen. We'll get out of this yet, me lad. We was roosting on the beach between Dunkirk and Lapany, like a lot of blooming pigeons on Victoria Embarkment, waiting for Jerry to pot us. He potted us good, too. He was behind us, flanking us, and above us. He gave us shrapnel, and he gave us H.E., and he peppers us from the blooming atmosphere with jittersmiths. And offshore is the Kentish Maid, a ruddy excursion scow, what I've taken many a trip on out of a margate in the summer, for two and six, waiting for to take us off, half a mile out from the blooming shallows. While we're lying there on the beach, done in and cursing, because there ain't no way to get to the boat, a stucker dives on her, and his bombs drop alongside of her, throwing up water like the blooming fountains in the palace gardens. A regular display it was. Then a destroyer came up and says, No you don't, to the strucker, with attacks and pom-poms. But another jerry dives on the destroyer, and it's her. Coo, did she go up! She burned before she sank, and the smoke and the stink came drifting inshore, and yellow and black, and out of it comes this blooming goose, a-circling around us, trapped on the beach. And then around a bend, it comes in a bloody little sailboat, sailing along as cool as you please, like a blooming toff out for a pleasure spin on a Sunday afternoon on Enley. Who comes? inquired a civilian. Him, him that saved a lot of us. He sailed clean through a boiler machine gun bullets from a jerry and a jittersmith that was strafing a Ramsgate motorboat what had tried to take us off had been sunk there half an hour ago. The water was all frothing with shell splashes and bullets but he didn't give it no mind, he didn't. He didn't have no petrol to burn or explode and he sailed in between the shells. Into the shallows he'd come out of the black smoke of the burning destroyer, a little dark man with a beard a blooming claw for her hand and a ump on his back. 
He had a rope in his teeth that was shining white out of his black beard. His good hand on the tiller and the crooked one beckoning us to come, and overhead, out and around, flied the ruddy goose. Jock here says, Look, it's all over now. It's the bloody devil come for us himself. He must have been struck and don't know it. Garn, I says, it's more like the good lord. He looks to me than any blooming devil. He did too, like the picture from the Sunday school's books, with his white face and dark eyes and beard and all, and his blooming boat. I can take seven at a time, he sings out when he's in close. Our officer shouts, Good man, you seven nearest, get in. We waded out to where he was. I was that weary I couldn't climb over the side, but he takes me by the collar of me tunic and pulls. With a in you go, lad. Come on, next man. And in I went. Cooey were strong he was. And he sets his sail. Part of what looks like a blooming sieve from machine gun bullets shouts. Keep down in the bottom of the boat, boys, in case we're met by any of your friends. And we're off. I'm sitting in the stern with his rope in his teeth, another in his crooked claw. And he's right. And on the tiller, stealing and sailing through the spray of the shells, thrown by land battery somewhere back of the coast. And the blooming goose is flying around and around, onking above the wind on the row Jerry was making, like a blooming Morris on Winchester Bypass. I told you yon goose was an omen, I says to Jock. Look at him there, a blooming angel of mercy. Him at the tiller just looks up at the goose, with rope in his teeth and grins at her, like he knows her a lifetime. He brung us out to the Kentish maid and turns around and goes back for another load. He made trips all afternoon and all night too because the bloody light of Dunkirk burning was bright enough to see by. I don't know how many trips he made, but him and a Nobby Tams Yacht Club motorboat and a big lifeboat from Poole that came along brought off all there was of us on that particular stretch of L without the loss of a man. We sailed when the last man was off, and there was more than 700 of us aboard a boat built to take two under. It was still there when we left, and he waved us goodbye and sails off towards Dunkirk, and the bird with him. Blimey, it was queer to see that ruddy big goose flying about his boat, lit up by the fires like a white angel against the smoke. A stucker had another go at us, halfway across, but he'd been staying up late nice and missed. By morning, we were safe home. I never did find out what became of him. Or who he was, him with the ump and his little sailboat. A bloody good man he was, that chap. Cool, said the artilleryman. A ruddy big goose. What you know? In an officer's club in Brook Street, a retired naval officer, 65 years old, Commander Keith Brillauder, was telling of his experiences during the evacuation of Dunkirk. Called out of bed at four o'clock in the morning, he had captained a lopsided limehouse tug across the channel, towing a string of Thames barges, which he brought back four times loaded with soldiers. On his last trip, he came in with a funnel shot away and a hole in her side, but he got her back to Dover. A naval reserve officer who had two Brixham trawlers and a Yarnmouth drifter blasted out from under him in the last four days of the evacuation said, Did you run across that queer sort of legend about a wild goose? 
It was all up and down the beaches. You know how those things spring up? Some of the men I brought back were talking about it. It was supposed to have appeared at intervals, the last days between Dunkirk and Le Pan. If you saw it, you were eventually getting saved. That sort of thing. Hmm, said Brillaudner. A wild goose. I saw a tame one. Dashed strange experience. Tragic in a way, too. And lucky for us. Tell you about it. Third trip back, towards six o'clock, we sighted a derelict small boat. Seemed to be a chap or body in her, and a bird perched on the rail. We changed our course when we got nearer, and went over for a look-see. By gad, it was a chap, or had been, poor fellow. Machine guns, you know. Badly. Face down in the water. Bird was a goose, a tame one. We drifted close, but when one of our chaps reached over, the bird hissed at him and struck him with her wings. Couldn't drive it off. Suddenly, young Kettering, who was with me, gave a hail and pointed to starboard. Big mine floating by. One of Jerry's beauties. If we kept on our course, we would have plied right into it. Ugh, head on. We let it get a hundred yards astern of the last barge, and the men blew it up with rifle fire. When we turned our attention to the derelict again, she was gone. Sunk. Concussion, you know. Chap with her. He must have been lashed to her. The bird had got up and was circling. Three times, like a plane saluting. Dashed queer feeling. Then she flew off to the west. Lucky thing for us, we went over to have a look, eh? Odd that you should mention a goose. Fritha remained alone at the little lighthouse on the Great Marsh, taking care of the pinioned birds, waiting, for she knew not what. The first days she haunted the sea wall, watching, though she knew it was useless. Later she roamed through the storerooms of the lighthouse, building, with their stacks of canvas, on which Ryder had captured every mood and light of the desolate country, and the wondrous, graceful, feathered things that inhabited it. Among them, she found the picture that Ryhard had painted of her from memory so many years ago, when she was still a child, and had stood, wind-blown and timid, at his threshold, hugging an injured bird to her. The picture and the things she saw in it stirred her as nothing ever had before, for much of Ryder's soul had gone into it. Strangely, it was the only time he had painted the snow goose, the lost wild creature, storm-driven from another land, that to each had brought a friend, and which, in the end, returned to her with the message that she would never see him again. Long before the snow goose had come dropping out of a crimson eastern sky to circle the lighthouse in a last farewell, Fritha, from the ancient powers of the blood that was in her, knew that Ryada would not return. And so, when one sunset she had heard the high-pitched, well-remembered note cried from the heavens, it brought no instant of false hope to her heart. This moment, it seemed, she had lived before many times. She came running to the seawall and turned her eyes, not toward the distant channel whence a sail might come, but in the sky from whose flaming arches plummeted the snow goose. Then the sight, the sound, and the solitude surrounding broke the dam within her and released the surging, overwhelming truth of her love, let it well forth in tears. Wild spirit called to wild spirit, and she seemed to be flying with the great bird, soaring with it in the evening sky and hearkening to Ryder's message. 
Sky and earth were trembling with it, and filled her beyond the bearing of it. Frith, Fritha, Frith, my love, good-bye, my love. The white pinions, black-tipped, were beating it out upon her heart, and her heart was answering, Philip, I love ee. For a moment, Frith thought the snow-goose was going to land in the old enclosure as the pinion geese set up a welcoming gabble, but it only skimmed low, then soared up again, flew in a wide, graceful spiral once around the light, and then began to climb. Watching it, Frith saw no longer the snow-goose, but the soul of Ryada, taking farewell of her before departing forever. She was no longer flying with it, but earth-bound. She stretched her arms up into the sky, and stood on tiptoes, reaching, and cried, Godspeed! Godspeed, Philip! Frith's tears were stilled. She stood watching silently long after the goose had vanished. Then she went into the lighthouse and secured the picture that Ryad had painted of her. Hugging it to her breast, she wended her way homeward along the old sea wall. Each night, for many weeks thereafter, Frith came to the lighthouse and fed the pinion birds. Then one early morning, a German pilot on a dawn raid mistook the old abandoned light for an active military objective, dived onto it, a screaming steel hawk, and blew it, and all it contained, into oblivion. That evening, when Fritha came, the sea had moved in through the breached walls and covered it over. Nothing was left to break the utter desolation. No marsh fowl had dared to return. Only the flightless gulls wheeled and soared and mewed their paint over the place where it had been. That was The Snow Goose by Paul Gallico, 1897-1976. If you enjoyed this, please tune in next time. And if you have any suggestions for future readings, don't hesitate to let me know. You can reach me via Facebook at a British man in Japan, each word separated by a full stop, or Instagram at British man in Japan, again with each word separated by a full stop. Episodes will be released every Monday and should be available via Apple's podcast directory. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and stay indoors should it be required of you.